So I hope you got a handout. Uh, I don't know how far in it we'll get, but I'd like to at least cover all the topics. So I want to keep moving through if I could. Uh, this is our sixth week at what I'm calling <clears throat> the eternally glorious backward look. By that I mean the basic premise of my book and of this study is that we will remember in, in heaven our lives on earth and we will learn God will be a teacher of history to us and show it to us for his own glory. I had a new aspect of this meditation. I just keep learning new things. And you know how Jesus says at the end in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, there's a lot of truth in that, but one of them is, is how right it is that Christians have a linear view of history. Uh, it's not cyclical like those that believe in reincarnation. We're in, in an endless cycle, but there is a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. But what Jesus is saying is, I am history. And not only that, if you think about let's transfer over from Greek to, uh, to English letters. I am the A to Z. That means Jesus is not just the A and the Z, but every letter in between. And not just, you know, how he says, I am the truth. Uh, he uh, does not merely teach the truth or, or uh, exemplify the truth or any of that. His connection with truth is so intimate and total that he can just make that assertion, I am the truth. He does teach the truth. He does live out the truth. He does help us to come to the truth, but he is the truth. Well, then by I am the Alpha and the Omega, he also is history. He is every letter. And so the chance to be in heaven and zero in, let's pick the letter L. I want to zero in on the letter L and tell you how I am the letter L. I was that era in the 14th century. I was at work then, and I want to show it to you. And, and we don't know it. We, we weren't alive then. Most of us don't have the leisure to study. And so it's really been a thrilling study for me to, to, to try to understand how much we have to learn and how great that is. So the topics in front of us here today, one more time, are listed below the, the title there. We're going to talk today about memory of our sins in heaven, which is very challenging, a challenging topic and off-putting for some, so much so that they almost, once they find out what I'm talking about, would say, well, that can't be true. We're not going to remember our sins. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about what I call the chapter I wrote. It was entitled Memories of the Damned. And so that's two. Well, to understand that two ways. First of all, what we, the redeemed, will remember of those who were not redeemed, those who were damned. Will we remember them? Will we remember their lives, etc.? And then conversely, what will they remember, the damned, remember as they're suffering and torment? It's both sides of that. We'll talk about that. So those are two very challenging topics. There are, there's milk and there's meat when it comes to Scripture. So I'm going to be presenting meat for you to chew on and to contemplate. But as you, as you do, I think, as I make a case for a full memory of both of those things, those topics, namely our sins and the damned, uh, that, that the alternative is worse, the alternative is not biblical, and that we'll see how God is glorified in that memory. So we'll talk about that. Uh, thirdly, that we will remember evil itself. And that uh, I'm going to make a case for one way to look at, at all of redemptive history is through the, uh, the lens of the education that Adam sought on, on our behalf. Not really fully understanding what he was doing, but remember, he went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he wanted to know evil. And so we could argue to some degree that we've had six millennium now, 6,000 years of history in evil. And that we will in heaven know it like God does and hate it like God does. And that if you take away the memory of evil, then how can we hate it? 
So it really is a completion of our salvation to know evil and hate it the way he does. And so this education in evil is both personal and corporate, comprehensive. And so for us, we will have learned what evil was in our lifetime and come to hate it. And that's already happening. If you're genuinely born again, you're already growing in your hatred of evil. You're, you're already seeing how much your own sin is troubling you, how much it's hurting your marriage, how much it's hurting your family life, how much it's hurting everything, and how eager you are to be done with it. It's going on. It's already happening. You are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, aren't you? And, and that's going to be consummated in heaven. But with that, a full knowledge of evil so that we are not ignorant like children in heaven, but that we will know it and hate it like God does. So I'll make that case. And then finally, I'm going to give some exhortations based on this entire study. Um, why is it beneficial to study these things? Why is it helpful to study heaven, to know it? And so I'm going to lay out some applications. And then a, a central exhortation, which would be to do everything you can to store up treasure in heaven, which I've already argued is an intimate knowledge of God, a personal knowledge of God in heaven that's unique to you having to do with your life, your good works, your deeds, that God will commend you for, saying, well done, good and faithful servant, that he will let you into his joy and that you should be ambitious for as much of that as you can have. As much heavenly experience as you can have, you should go for. So that's an overview of the whole class. So before we go on, any questions about past studies we've had about this topic? Anything before we get in? You're in stunned silence. You're like, I thought we were in Christ and culture and now we're talking about heaven. All right, well, let's go ahead. And I, do, I really do welcome questions along the way. I have given up all hope of, of finishing this handout, so there's no, no chance, zero chance. But we'll just get as far as we can. So let's begin by talking about our sin. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Amen. I actually think Ecclesiastes may be the beginning of the answer to the question because it's so depressing. I mean, you read that book and you're like, really? It's all dust in the wind? Yes. If Christ has not been raised, it is. But Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore, as Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain not in vain. So the more you believe that, guess what? The more you're going to do for Christ. So that's why you should read the book. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's keep going. All right. Let's talk now about one of the more painful topics uh, about heavenly memories. And that is, will we remember our sins? And then at a lesser degree, will we remember our sufferings? These painful memories uh, are very much worthy of discussion on this topic. Uh, it's what could lead people inadvertently to a heavenly amnesia, a heavenly lobotomy, something like that, which really is unbiblical. But it's because these memories would be so painful, you'd think, how could I possibly, why would we even want this to be true? Now, many verses also, this is a bigger problem for it, is it may seem unbiblical that we would remember our sins because there's so much in the Bible about God forgetting our sins. All right, could somebody read uh, for us Isaiah 43:25? It's It's there in your handout. Well, I'm, I'm thinking what could be plainer, but if you, need it, if you need any other verses, there are actually several, even many other verses that teach the same thing. Uh, for example, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and then skipping ahead, for I will forgive their, their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more which is quoted by the author of Hebrews as the essence of the new covenant, the essence of the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant uh, has to do with the transformed nature. He will take out the heart of stone. He'll write his laws in our minds and our hearts. But the culmination is, I will forgive your sins. The Old Covenant did not forgive sins. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. Never did. It was always pointing to a better, a new covenant. Always. And part of that is this language, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
And again, other verses such as, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, or he will hurl them into the depths of the sea, many other such teachings. So how do we understand that? And then uh, the heavenly idea is that, you know, I thought we were, we were done with all that. Um, why would we circle back and look at it? Well, one, we want to start, as I did, um, you know, on the issue of, of omniscience, all right? One of the basic ideas of my book is we will never be omniscient, ever. What that means is there's always something to learn. So that means that heaven will be pretty exciting in that God's going to be teaching you things forever. You'll never get to a point, even when you've been there 10,000 years, that you will say, I've got it. There's nothing new to learn. No, that just will never happen. God always has more of his glory to show you. All right. So, but that's a, a very powerful meditation on this topic as well. God does not cease being omniscient when he tells you he will forget your sins. So what do you make of that? How do you, how do you harmonize God's omniscience and him saying he'll forget your sins? Is it a reduced omniscience we're arguing for here? God knows everything but your sins. Clearly no. So how do you harmonize that? God says, I will forget your sins, but he's also omniscient. Forgets nothing. Exactly. It's, it, a lot of it, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. There's like almost a psychology of this. One is, is knowing how God sees you. Okay? He sees you as righteous in Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Um, so just you can know that when he looks at you, he's not thinking about your sins. Um, another is to see the value of, I'm getting ahead of my hand. I don't want to do that. Let me just take it in order. Um, but what I would say is this. This is really kind of geeky, but meditate on it. You're at no relational disadvantage with God because of your sin. You're no worse off <clears throat> in your relationship with God because you sinned or turning it around. You, you would be no better off with him if you had not sinned. And that's hard for us even to fathom that level of forgiveness. It's just staggering. And, and actually, I think one way to interpret Isaiah 55 when he says that the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There are two different ways to read that in Isaiah 55, but one of them is, has to do with forgiveness. He forgives our wickedness for he is so much higher than us. He doesn't forgive like we forgive. He's so much better at forgiving than we are. He's as better at forgiving than we are as the heavens are higher than the earth. He is really, really good at forgiving. And what that means is he is delighted to share a table with you in heaven. He, when he sees you, the warmth and welcome that, that you would, it's just like the parable of the prodigal son. The father is delighted to see the son back again, not holding against him all of the wealth that he squandered on loose living. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking, my son has returned. So you're at no relational disadvantage, but he remembers everything meticulously. But how does he remember it? This is, this is the language. Keep in mind also the parable of the 10,000 talents. Remember that parable? And remember when that servant would not forgive one of his fellow servants? You remember what happened in the parable? The king called him back in and talked to him like no one has ever talked to anyone. He said, I forgave all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Oh, you remembered it? Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember the 10,000 talents. So Jesus clearly is saying God knows your sins and he's going to hold you to the fact that you have been forgiven so you forgive others. So clearly even there there's a dynamic of we both know what's happened here, right? You have come to me for forgiveness. You have asked mercy. You've asked grace. Now you owe it to your brothers and sisters to forgive them. There is that dynamic. Do you feel that in the 10,000 talents? It's like we both know I've been forgiven. So it's, he doesn't forget. 
It's just relationally, as Jay said really well, he doesn't hold it against us. Doesn't hold it, doesn't bring it up. Uh, uh, all right, so another aspect of this is atonement. Atonement in the Old Testament, the word kippur, uh, means, the Hebrew word means covering. It's like the covering on the ark that, that kept the rain off. It's a covering. That's the word used for atonement. The word atonement is just an English word, at one meant. But the, uh, the concept in Hebrew is of a covering. So it's like this massive eternal cover-up. We're all saved by a cover-up. And it's openly taught in Psalm 32 and Romans 4. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It's covered. Covered by what? By Christ, by his blood, by the atoning work of Christ. So when he sees you, he sees the covering. So it really is just an intertrinitarian celebration of the greatness of his son. He, he looks at you, the sinner, and sees Christ, the Savior, and just loves that view. He sees his own son. He sees us in Christ. That's the, the language. And so there is that aspect. But I'm saying if it's covered, it still exists. It's somewhat like nuclear waste. It doesn't ever go anywhere. You got to put it somewhere. You got to put it in a lead-lined canister somewhere. Even if it's in the depths of the ocean, it's still nuclear waste. So God can't unwrite history. Even if he spoke the universe out of existence and create a whole a new bunch of creatures that knew nothing about universe number one, he would know it happened. And so he's not going to lie. So the history's history. There's no unwriting it. So again, all I'm saying, going forward, if you don't want to remember something for all eternity, then don't do it. Okay, that's just a good motivation, right? Don't you think that's the way the Bible teaches holiness? Paul says there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Vertically, horizontally. Paul's saying I don't want new sins. So there should be a zeal, if you're saved, a zeal for holiness in your life, a yearning for holiness. So that's a good application of this whole study. It makes us want to be holy. But what about the past? Friend, you can do nothing about it except learn from it. But if you're a Christian, it's covered. It's covered. If you're not a Christian, it's not covered. It, God will hold those sins against you. He'll bring them up on judgment day and you'll be condemned by them. But if you're a Christian, it's covered in the atoning work of Christ, but it's not gone anywhere. Does that make sense? It's still there. It all happened, etc. All right. Now, here's the thing. If there, and I, we've already covered this before, but it's important. If there is no memory of sin, how can there be a celebration of grace? Let me say it again. If there's no memory of sin in heaven, how can there be a celebration of grace? What does grace, how does grace relate to sin? How would you put those together? Yeah, absolutely. I would say there's an intimate connection between grace and sin. Where there's no sin, there's no need for grace. So the holy angels, as far as I can see in scripture, the holy angels, are, God doesn't show them grace. I mean, they're holy. They cover their faces. They have a sense of the infinite gap between God the Creator and them as creatures. So there's that holiness gap. They have that, but they haven't sinned. They're holy. And so there's no need for grace. There's no covering. There's no redemption. There's no atonement. It's not needed because they never sinned. Does that make sense? But we're the sinners. We're the redeemed. And so if we're going to celebrate grace in heaven, then there has to be some memory of sin. And I don't think just some. It's really going to end up being all or nothing. Why would God remember some sins and not others? And so, therefore, it really is a full record of, of it. Now, let me hurry to say, Revelation 21.4 comes in again and again. And we'll, we'll circle, but I want to say it now. In heaven, there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Revelation 21.4. So that means memory, but no pain. Memory, but no shame. Just memory. 
And why? As a fuel for worship, as a fuel for the glory of God. And as we can put it this way, necessary backstory. Okay? It's really hard to unweave the tapestry of all the dark threads. You just can't unweave it and just pull out all the sins. There's just no story left to tell. So think about the Apostle Paul. I am thankful for the record of his pre-conversion sins in the Bible, aren't you? I'm thankful for knowing what he was before he was converted. Why would I say that? Why would I say I'm glad I know how he was the day before the road to Damascus? Why would I say that? I'm glad about that. Impressive. To the glory of God the Savior, the glory of Christ, that Christ can just save anyone, anytime. And 1 Timothy 1 teaches this quite plainly. All right, look at this. 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. Faith was poured out on me, so I believed in Jesus. That's, it's just awesome what he's saying here. And love, I love this statement. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul is just, like maybe in all of church history, the paradigm example of a sinner saved by grace, by sovereign grace. And here's the thing, is that story still going to be worth recounting and celebrating in heaven? Come on, that's an easy one. Of course it is. Well, what about all the other stories? The multitude greater than anyone could count. Are all those stories also worth recounting? They are. But can you recount them without knowing of the sin? You can't. And so, therefore, there has to be that narrative so that God gets the glory. Go ahead, Stephanie. Absolutely. It is to his glory to show the cost that was paid for our salvation. It's an amazing thing. So here's the thing. I, I just am advocating the greatest glory of God, the display of God's attributes, is in the salvation of sinners. Not in the creation of the new heaven, new earth, or the beauty of the new Jerusalem. It's, that's all glorious. But there's nothing more glorious than the redemption of sinners through all of this story, through, by the gospel. Nothing's more amazing and more glorious than that. And so he will have his worship in heaven. And it's tied to grace, therefore it's tied to that story. Ephesians 1, go ahead, brother. I would shrink back from impact. It does impact, but it just only impacts positively. It just makes us thankful, right? Makes us soft, makes us yielded, makes us humble. We'll forever be humble in heaven. I think that's both here, both here and there. There's no essential difference. So in other words, the more obedient you are now, the better relationship you have with God, and frankly, the more of himself he'll show you. Yeah, John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. So in other words, the more obedient you are, the more he'll manifest himself to you. And I think that goes on into eternity. He'll just show more of himself to you in heaven. So everyone gets to drink from God in heaven, but not equally. And so if you want a bigger drink in heaven, then live differently here on earth. That's the basic argument. Yeah. All right, so to keep going, Ephesians 1, to summarize, I'm not going to read it all. But Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. All, he did all of that for the praise of his glory, the praise of his glorious grace, 
so that we will praise the glory of his grace. That's why he saved us. And he planned all this before the foundation of the world. Then he circles back and says the same thing in chapter two. He says, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to wickedness. But God, because of his greatness and, and his love and his mercy, made us alive even when we we're dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that, so this is the big, why did you do it? In order that in the coming ages, that's heaven, he might show, not merely talk about, show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kind to us in Christ Jesus, kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So an eternal display of the glory of his grace, that's what heaven's about. So if you don't remember sin, how does that happen? How can God be glorified by a, as a sin forgiver, a sin coverer, a sin redeemer, if we don't remember the sin? But again, Revelation 21, 4, no mourning, no shame, no pain, just memory. That's what I'm arguing for. So how can that be? You're like, I don't even think that's possible. How can I remember and not feel ashamed? I mean, that'd be almost like I'm somehow damaged goods in heaven. No, you're damaged goods now. You'll be healthy in heaven. How will you possibly have a memory but no negative emotions? Well, one indication of this is Joseph's statement to his brothers in, in uh, hang on, where am I? All right. I haven't lost my mind. All right, turn, turn the page. Joseph, Joseph's memory to his brothers. It's kind of cool how I don't know what to do next, and then I just say something, it turns out to be the next thing on the handout. That's pretty cool. It's kind of proof that I wrote it. Um, anyway, um, this amazing story, you remember, it's very poignant. It's one of the most poignant stories in the Bible, how Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave in Egypt out of their jealousy and hatred for him. No good motive on their part at all. They really wanted to murder him, but they got kind of rescued. We, we want to sin, but not that much. So, you know, rescued from that, sold as a slave, badly treated. But then, little by little, to Joseph anyway, first to Joseph, God's amazing plan starts to unfold concerning the seven years of famine. And so the time comes for him to reveal himself to his brothers. Look what he says. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. Did he remember the past? Oh, he remembers. It's not like he's got amnesia. He knows. But now listen to this. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It's like, is that even possible? But I think it will be consummated in heaven. You will not be angry or distressed with yourself for anything in heaven because you will see that everything that happened in the end was for the praise of the, God, of the glory of God. And you will not regret it. You don't regret Paul, Paul's sins. You're in some way glad for them. Not for the sin itself. It would have been better for him to be a Christian the first time he heard of Jesus. You could argue that. But it's an amazing story that God redeemed him. So don't be ang angry with yourself. So this is the basic idea. Fuller re revelation of God's plan swallows up all human shame and grief since our actions were intrinsically woven into the tapestry of God's eternal purposes. Joseph exhorted his brothers to look beyond their own sinful actions, and they were sinful. Joseph isn't actually minimizing that. But to see the glory of God's marvelous plan, Joseph would never have been in Egypt if his brothers had not sold him there. God's wisdom swallows up our shame. Well, listen, that story is small compared to the bigger story of us being saved by Christ's blood. That's a bigger story. There's more wisdom more power on display there, more glory. 
So if that's true of Joseph in the little story of seven years of famine, how much more is it true of a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation? You see the point? The point is you will not be distressed with yourself. You'll just be swallowed up in praise and glory. And you, frankly, you're going to be delivered from you anyway in heaven. You'll be so delivered from yourself. You will be not, you're fanatically loyal to you right now. We all are. It's like, how does this make me look? All right, that's the real question, right? No, that is not the real question. It's how does it make God look? How does it make Christ look? That's the question. And what is beneficial for brothers and sisters as well? That it's, there's a horizontal aspect too, but you're just going to be delivered from shame. You won't be feeling any at all. All right, now here's one last theological argument for, for remembering our sins in heaven, and that is that there has been, now that you're a Christian, a decisive separation between you and your sin made. It's like a big axe was chopped down between you and your sin. So that Paul makes these amazing statements in Romans 7. In Romans 7, 17, he says, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do, who does it, uh, do it, but it is sin living in me. I don't do the sin. That's a bit of an odd assertion. Like disavowing all involvement. No, no, no. What he's saying, he's not disavowing. He, he knows that he sins because it brings him grief. He says, what a wretched man I am who will deliver me from that. He knows. But what he's saying is, I have a new creation entity inside myself, a new center of being. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Everything has become new. I'm a new creature in Christ. That new creature would never do those things. Never. I hate sin. I love righteousness. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, that's just begun for us in this world, in justification, sanctification. Just, it's consummated in heaven. You are not the person you were even in sanctification in heaven. You'll be so much better in glorification than you ever were in sanctification. So at that point, you'll just say, it, well, it's not I who, who did that, but that was who I was then. So there's no disavowing. There is a story and there's your reputation and all that sort of stuff. That's all tied up. The story is tied up in individuals and names. That's the very thing I'm advocating. That's what history is. It's names, reputation, stories, what happened. But what I'm saying is you as a new creation in Christ, you would never do any sin. And that's consummated in heaven. And that's pretty exciting. All right. One last uh, thing I think, and then we have to move on or we won't get to any of these things. All right, let me just summarize these. Heavenly clothing. I had to meditate on the white robes. I spent a long time on this. It's like, will we need clothing in heaven? What an odd topic. I have all kinds of weird ideas rattling around in my head. So here's the thing. My basic idea is we're not going to present to others as sinners in heaven. We're not going to be wearing a scarlet letter. When you see Paul, you're not going to say, oh, Paul, blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man. I read about you. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. As I said before, it's, Paul could say, yes, but I also wrote the book of Romans and planted some churches. Um, so the, the fact is we're not presenting to each other as anything but glorious and radiant. We're not going around shamefully attired. Our shameful nakedness has been covered in the imputed righteousness of Christ, but not just that, in our own works. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't say it. The Bible did. If you look at some of these scriptures, um, look at uh, Revelation 19, 6 through 8. There's a lot, the, most of these passages about white robes, like they're wearing white, ro white robes in heaven. I'm just establishing that you'll be wearing a white robe in heaven. All right. But just, you know, trying to understand the symbolism of that, what that means. Revelation 19, 
6-8 says this, Then when I, saw, uh, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She's gotten dressed for her wedding day. And now look what it says. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. That's in the Bible, friends. He's not minimizing imputed righteousness. It's not on the basis of our works that we're forgiven ever. But there is a glory that comes to us in heaven. That's the essence of heavenly rewards. There is an honor and a glory that comes in relation to your righteous works. Now, we went through this in, in this teaching on rewards. You're, none of your works are perfect anyway. We know that. They all had to be purified, passed through the fire of purification, etc. There are no perfect things we ever do with our mixed brains. But there are still some works that God calls righteous acts, and you'll wear them as part of your attire in heaven. So there's a combination of imputed righteousness, the glory of God in Christ, but then your own righteous works like crowns and other awards uh, that you will wear. Does that make sense? So there is that, that radiant display. Also, Revelation 22, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. So just meditate on heavenly clothing. The idea is we will not present horizontally to each other shamefully, but you will present gloriously. You'll look at each other and just see glory. That's all you're seeing. Um, there is a covering for our shameful nakedness. Therefore, I'm arguing for, to some degree, a foreground knowledge and a background knowledge. You're presenting as glorious, but there is a backstory that needs to be told. And your actions, your words, what you did are woven into that. It's, there's no way to unweave the tapestry. You were part of the whole thing. And the things you did were part of it. Even your own sins brought about certain outcomes that worked out providentially according to the plans of God. And we see this again and again. And so the story has to be told, but there's no shame in it, and you don't present in reference to that to one another. So there's more like a backstory or background knowledge, the best I can make of it. Friends, we'll know all this much better in heaven. I'm stumbling through words trying to get concepts across. All right? All right, one last thing is about our earthly sufferings. Earthly suffering we will also remember, but it will not be painful. Like our sins, it will just be part of the necessary story. And not only that, you will see in heaven why it had to happen. We don't get stories now. It's a little, a little bit too clumsy, let's say, if a teenager dies and then there's a big memorial service and then five teenagers pray to receive Christ at the funeral to say, oh, that's why my son or daughter died. It's just God's not signing off on that. It's far deeper than that. First of all, we don't know that all the people that will be saved from the words that were spoken that day were saved that day. Some of them might be saved in six years. So it's just too complicated for all that. But there is a reason why. There's a purpose for everything. And now is not the time to know it. It's too complicated. You just need to trust God. Keep moving ahead. Don't get bitter toward him. Give all of your concerns to him. The very thing that J.I. Packer argues for in God's wisdom and ours. Don't seek inside information on why that had to happen. But as we've seen with that hymn from William Cooper, which I've given you the, the lyrics for here, um, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. So in heaven, he will explain or show why. And maybe not directly, more indirectly. I, I would think, for example, do you think Job knows now that there was a conversation between God and Satan concerning his sufferings before they happened? 
Do you think he knows that now? Yes. Did he know it then? No. Did he know it after he was restored to health? Doesn't seem like it. God never said, now I, I kind of owe you an explanation. All right, let me tell you what happened. He doesn't owe him anything, but he knows now. And so just seeing the fuller dimensions of our suffering, that's going to happen in heaven. Not Job's sufferings will be entirely forgotten. Don't even think about that. That's all in the past. No, no, no. It's a very important part of the story. Frankly, how many of the elect have suffered better and been helped by the book of Job? That's part of the redemptive story of God. It's in scripture. And so God used Job's sufferings to bless his people in every generation. We are all helped by that book. And so that they would be forgotten, that the sufferings would be forgotten in heaven makes no sense at all. Instead, they'll be fully, more fully and more perfectly explained. And again, it's very complicated. All of these things are complex. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Any questions about our sins and sufferings remembered and redeemed in heaven? Yeah, we have to be careful because we don't know. But what I am saying is God knows his reasons. When, when Cooper says God is his own interpreter, he's interpreting his own sovereign story that he wrote. It's like, let me tell you why I wrote it like this. Go ahead, one more thing. His paths are beyond tracing out. His wisdom is infinitely deep. And so heaven will be part of that. We'll be explaining the suffering aspect. All right, let's keep moving. Let's talk about memories of the damned. And I've already told you the two ways to understand this phrase. The memories by the redeemed of those who are condemned. So will we remember loved ones who didn't make it? People we loved on earth who didn't make it. Um, and secondly, what will they remember in hell? Those two things. So again, this is a hard topic, but I'm just being consistent with the concept of what, and the, and the question, what will we remember in heaven? So these would be some things that people will bring up. Um, we all love people that we have a sense um, uh, may, might not make it to heaven. Now, one thing I just want to say that, that Romans 9 divides the world into two categories, uh, vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath, uh, the elect, the reprobate, etc. It's just taught in Romans 9. It's clear there's, there's nothing that takes that away. God isn't confused by who's elect, who's reprobate. One thing I would say is there is one piece of knowledge I believe we cannot have in this world at all, and that is who the reprobate are. What that means is we always have hope for people in this life, don't we? We always are praying for unsaved relatives. And not only that, I'm saying there is a, an emotional side that's completely appropriate, this side of Judgment Day, and it involves tears and anguish, suffering for, by us for unsaved relatives. And not only suffering and anguish, but extreme effort made that this anguish has actually been a great incentive to the explosion of missions around the world. <coughs> that people like William Carey are in anguish about pagans who haven't come to faith in Christ yet in India, and they go to India. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the unsaved among my own people, the Jews. Sorrow and unceasing anguish. What I'm saying is those emotions are appropriate now. They will not happen then. That's what I'm saying. The rules of the game are different now than they will be in heaven. After Judgment Day, there is no transfer from hell to heaven or heaven to hell. It's done. What's done is done, and it's over. And there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain for the redeemed. So what does that mean? We will remember them but not weep over them. 
We will remember them, but not be in anguish over them. There'll be no regrets on our part concerning them because all of those things are, are removed. Turning it around, for the damned, there's nothing but death, mourning, crying, and pain. Nothing but that. That's all they experience in eternal conscious torment. There is a psychological, mental, memory aspect of for the damned, which can be proved in Scripture. And so again, one more motivation that we plead with people to find salvation in Christ because of just how horrible uh, hell is. But what I'm saying is the alternative to what I'm teaching here is that we will know nothing about the reprobate in heaven. Part of that then would be that we would know more about reprobation and the damned here on earth than we, knew, than we will know in heaven because we know a lot. We just don't know their names, whatever, but we know that that's a category and that people will spend eternal conscious torment, that there will be sheep and goats separated, that there was a whole bunch of goats that didn't make it. We know all of that now. In heaven, how could we have lesser knowledge? So I actually think greater knowledge, not less. So the alternative would be that we have no memory at all of loved ones and of people in general. Uh, I'd argue against annihilation, so you can read that thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. It, it, basically, if you don't remember them, it's like they're annihilated, like they never lived. And I just don't think that's possible. Now, a key, uh, key insight here comes from Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, so that's in uh, Luke 16. You remember the parable. I'll just summarize it. Have you ever listened to a podcast on 1.5 speed or 2x? Sound like Mickey Mouse. That's what I'm doing today. <laughs> Crazy. Like, zzz, we're going too fast. I know. It's, it is what it is. All right. But in, in the parable, uh, Jesus gives this parable. And my, my approach to the parable is parables are parable. It's not, didn't really happen. But there's a certain structure to the worldview that is true. All right. And so therefore, I think the parable can teach us accurately about both heaven and hell. So that's the approach I'm taking. And in that parable, as you remember, there's this rich man and this poor man named Lazarus, and the poor man is suffering day after day after day at the gates of the rich man, but never gets anything from the rich man. Rich man's living in luxury and ease day after day. They both die, and the poor man, Lazarus, goes to heaven to Abraham's side in the parable. The poor man goes to torment. Then there's a conversation that happens between Abraham and the, uh, the rich man in hell. And so that conversation becomes a source of information about uh, heavenly memories, frankly, and hell, hellish memories. And at one point, Abraham says to the rich man, remember, son, remember, son, that while you were alive, you enjoyed your good things, but Lazarus had nothing. But now he is here with me and you are in torment. Furthermore, the rich man is then concerned about his brothers that are still alive, who are apparently living the same kind of life that he did. And he's got somewhat of an evangelistic concern for them. And he says, would you please send someone to warn them lest they come here? And he said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Let them read the scripture. And he actually answers, no, Father Abraham. That's his view of scripture. No, that's not enough. Wow. A hellish view of scripture. Scripture's not enough. But if someone rises from the dead, they'll listen. And Abraham said, no, they won't. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus is actually talking about his own resurrection there. Very interesting. What do we learn from that? All right. 
Do you think that Abraham knew that the man in hell was one of his own descendants? Well, yes, he calls him his son. He calls him Father Abraham. Their relationship's connected, so he was, he's a Jewish man. All right? So, and Abraham knows that he's in torment. So that settles right away some of the questions that we would have in this topic. Do you see that? That the redeemed who are in heaven understand the, the specific people, by name even, who they were, what their story is in hell. There's a lot of information that comes from that. But there's other verses that teach it more overtly, such as Revelation 14. There in Revelation 13, we have the beast from the sea, and the beast from the sea comes and takes over planet Earth. And there's the mark of his, his name, the number of the, of the mark that's put on the forehead and the hand, all that's in Revelation 13. Then we find out in Revelation 14, there is an eternal consequence for receiving the mark of the beast. And so, it, it, again, we get teaching on hell here in Revelation 14. It says, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on its hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, look at the phrase, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So, and it says, The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night, etc. So that's, openly teaching eternal conscious torment, which is a very difficult doctrine, but it's biblical. Well, what does the phrase in the presence of the holy angels tell you? Okay, so do the angels know what's happening? How much of what they know, how much they know it all? You're like, well, that's angels, not us. Well, we're not done yet. (laughs) Not done yet. Why would God teach it to the angels but hide it from us, his children? And the answer is he wouldn't. By the way, the angels, just in the book of Revelation, are not in any way squeamish about what God is doing on planet Earth. And it's horrific. The judgments he pours out through the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are horrific. And at one point, when God turns all the drinking water into blood, the angel who's doing it says, you are right and just for what you are doing because they shed the blood of your people and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And it is right and just, just because you're doing it. So there's two levels. First of all, just because God did it, it's right. And secondly, it just lines up. There's a justice to it. It just makes sense. That's the two level of celebration that the angel does while he's doing it. What I'm saying is we'll be like that in heaven. We'll be so conformed to God. We will see things the way he does. Our loyalty will be to God and to no creature, but to God alone. We will be, our hearts will be completely knit to God and loyal to Christ and not to unsaved relatives. That's what I'm saying. And so we will know. John 15, 15, I think, is a key insight in this. Could someone read this for me so I can take a drink? John 15, 15. Wow, quite a statement. Jesus is in the process of educating his people on everything he learned from the Father. That process has only begun now. It will continue in heaven. So he's not hiding anything from us. He's not hiding it from the kids. It's not like, what is that distant cloud that's going up? Don't worry, just eat your meal. That's not happening. We know what's happening and why. And we celebrate the justice of God in it. Now, however difficult this is for us, these themes are taught in the Bible, and we have to grow up and have spiritual teeth to chew them. Now, the clearest indication that the redeemed, not just angels, the redeemed will see it, comes at the end of the book of Isaiah. 
And there it gives us a picture of the new heaven, new earth that God will make. And it says, as the new heaven, new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From, one, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And here's the statement. This is the end of the book of Isaiah. It's remarkable. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who rebelled, who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Well, you should know that Jesus directly quotes that to talk about hell. That's what he used to talk about what hell is like. In Mark 9, he says, uh, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where, quote, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So to Jesus, Isaiah 66 is talking about eternity and hell. But then it says the inhabitants of Zion, the heavenly Zion, will go out and look on the dead bodies of the rebels and see them. And their worm will not die and their, and their fire will not be quenched. So we will know in heaven what God did with everyone. Nothing will be hidden from us. As I said, the rules will be very, very different then. And I've already talked about carry and uh, spurring on to uh, missions. We will be conformed to Christ and our loyalty will be to Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. What does that statement mean to you? That's in the New Testament, something Paul wrote. If anyone has no love for Jesus, let him be accursed. What does accursed mean? Condemned eternally. Now, Paul, obviously, he's, he was more, more evangelistic and missionary than any of us will ever be. So he's not forgotten missions. He's saying, he's speaking ultimately here. Ultimately. If they won't love Jesus, I don't want to spend eternity with them. And the more you think about that, one of the joys and delights of heaven is no evil people. No crime. No people who don't love Jesus. Everything that we love about Christ, everyone we're with, they'll love it too. And we will have a perf perfect heavenly fellowship. The wheat and the weeds will be separated on Judgment Day, and there will be an eternal separation, and that will be much to the glory of God. Um, so, moving on about loyalty, I want to say one more thing. Yeah, common grace. One of the reasons we love the unsaved now is because of common grace. They have certain features that are amiable. They are kind, like I, this is in, in my book. Unbelievers still reflect the image of God to some degree while they lived on earth. The kindly agnostic grandmother made delicious oatmeal raisin cookies. The worldly businessman gave money to the poor. The old college roommate told hilarious stories and was fun to watch a football game with. More poignantly, our own mother loved us sacrificially and cared for us every day of our lives. Our precious daughter called every day and never forgot our birthdays, but they never loved Jesus. So those amiable qualities will not be part of who they are after judgment. Does that make sense? The common grace has been removed and they will not be the people we knew. They will be different, confirmed. All right, God's people also will be vindicated. God's people right now are assaulted all over the world by unbelievers. They're persecuted and they are told to love their enemies, right? and pray for their, those who persecute them. They are told to turn the other cheek, and they're told specifically never to take revenge. Why? What is the reason God tells them not to take revenge? Because he says, vengeance is mine. That's not all he says. I will 
repay. When? Here on earth? No, mostly not. Mostly not. As a matter of fact, Job in Job 21 talks about this. This is later. You can see it in the handout. Why is it that the wicked prosper and do so well? <laughs> and I'm sitting here surrounded by worms and lost everything. And I know that I'm not wicked. You don't know it, my good friends. All right. But I know that I'm not wicked. And yet the wicked prosper. And he says they are surrounded by loved ones and go to Sheol in peace. So when was the display of God's wrath? When was the display of his justice? Didn't happen in their case. In that person's case, they seem to have made it through, right? They seem to have gotten away with it. Does that make sense? Even Hitler taking a cyanide capsule or putting a bullet through his brain rather than facing the Red Army seems to have escaped. But we know he didn't, don't we? We know that the Red Army is nowhere as terrifying as a righteous, holy God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Romans 9 says, and this is a question we ask, why are the reprobate, why do they even exist? Why did God knit them together in their mother's womb? One of the, the reasons that Paul gives in Romans 9 is that God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to us? the object of his mercy. All right, well, when does that display happen, that lesson, that teaching, so that we can see the glory of God and how kind he was to us and how gracious he was to us and that we actually deserve the same as them? When does that full lesson happen? I'm arguing it happens in heaven, not on earth. We read the words and we can understand the concepts doctrinally, but we'll see it for eternity in heaven, okay? I told you this is me. There's probably no topic I've ever written on or studied this is hard to understand and, and to accept as this. Any questions before we go on with the last 20 minutes I have uh, to cover? Any questions? Yeah, fifth, the, it's justice and, and vengeance. Vengeance is not an evil thing because if it were, then God wouldn't say he's going to do it. He's just saying it's wrong for us to do it. The vigilante thing, you know, whatever. Don't do that. But here's the thing. Very interesting. Look in... in, in uh, Revelation 6, as the seals are broken open, the fifth seal shows in heaven the martyrs. Well, how do you get to be a martyr? Any thoughts on that? Any concepts of the process of being, I'm interested in being a martyr. What's the process? You're murdered. Well, that means there are murderers. And what do the redeemed in heaven feel about their murderers? What do they want? In Revelation 6, what do they want? They want justice vengeance and they're asking how long until it happens are they told what an inappropriate thought they're not told that at all they're saying it's going to happen but it's not going to happen yet there's still more martyrs that have to come there's a whole crop of martyrs yet to come i believe the overwhelming majority of of martyrs that will in the end be in heaven haven't died yet so there's a whole crop of martyrs yet to come and so they're told to wait they're given white robes and told to wait a little while and they're happily waiting for vengeance. So what we have to do is say, all right, again, as I said, the rules now and the rules then, they're just different rules. That's what makes the topic so hard. The rules now are you pray for your persecutors, you evangelize them, because some of them might be like Saul of Tarsus, awesome stories for all eternity, beating you up now, brother or sister in Christ a year from now. And so we have good hopes. We keep praying, whatever. Heaven, it's different. And so there in heaven, there is a righteous justice that comes. So here's the basic concept. Everything God does is right. 
uh, I'm, I'm going through uh, Job, and my daughter was reading Job this morning as we we're driving, and, and God says to Job, oh, you who argue with God, let's have a conversation. I, so I stopped there. I said, what do you think about a human being who argues with God? What's going on in that dynamic? She says, well, she thinks, or he, the person who argues with God thinks God's wrong. And not only that, that God can be won over by debate. Where at some point, God's going to say, you know, good point. Hadn't thought about it from that angle. You know, it's just not possible. Jay, go ahead. Yeah, that, that too. Romans 13 does say that he is God's, God's agent of, of wrath. No, it isn't. But what we know is in every single case now, in time now, there are two possible good outcomes. And they're both good. One of them is that they might, like Saul of Tarsus, be redeemed, as I just said, and one of the most awesome displays of God's grace ever. The other is that they will be condemned by God to an eternity in conscious torment under his justice. And what we have to see is both of those are good. God isn't unjust in doing that. And that's what is so hard for us because we just so totally absorb ourselves in the first of the two good things. We have a hard time seeing the second as good. So, all right, let's keep going. Um, there's so many more things we could cover here. Keep going, keep going, keep going. All right. Oh, yes, education in evil consummated. This is kind of interesting. Uh, I looked into this. Are you aware that there is a live sample of smallpox being kept in Atlanta at the Center for Disease Control? Does that bother you? Do you? Maybe you just don't know what smallpox is and what it's done in human history. There is no greater killer in human history than smallpox. Nothing has killed more people than that. It's unbelievable the tens of millions that are laid at the feet of that disease. There are, as far as I know, in the world, two samples. One's in Russia and one's in Atlanta, Georgia. No, you can't visit it. Um, not that you would want to. I would hope it's kept under intense lock and key. Um, why would a live sample of it be kept for the, at the Center for Disease Con Control? Right, yeah, knowledge for the sake of combating it, okay? Well, here's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue that heaven will be like, kind of like a center for disease control, all right? Only we won't just remember one virulent substance, but all of them. And we will understand all of the categorical sin patterns that so troubled the human race. We'll understand how sinful they were, all right? Take an example of the divisions there have been along various lines, race, culture, different things. Uh, I, I preached a whole sermon on this about how the dividing wall of hostility is removed in Christ. And in our country, there's a lot of division between black and white people, but all over the world, it's other divisions. Like I didn't realize the level of hostility there is against the Japanese for things they did in World War II by Chinese and Koreans, but there's a high level of memory. And so it's all over the world. There's, there's tribes in Africa, Hutus and Tutsis, that try to wipe each other out. Isn't it, wouldn't it be cool, and it is cool, that some from each of those groups are redeemed and perfectly one in heaven? Isn't it to the praise of God's glory that that particular sin, that type of division was solved by the cross? And so I'm saying the specific patterns of idolatry and wickedness were conquered, all of them, and addressed by the gospel. It's going to be very good to know that. Furthermore, as I said, our education and evil needs to be consummated. What, other than that, what was the point? We went through all of this evil, and then we get this memory wipe. And basically, I can imagine in heaven, we'll be told, see that door over there? Don't go through it. What's that door? You don't need to know. It's got label, evil. Don't go down that road. Why? Don't worry about it. 
That I do not think is what heaven will be all about. It's like that door is open. That evil road has been traveled only back in time. And you look and see how it destroyed the beautiful world that God made and how it hurt marriages and family life and cities and cultures, how these damaging things happened. And we will hate it. So the issue has to do with salvation, where it says, I know it's really hard to get out of here. I'm very sorry. Um, it says of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. All I'm saying is so will you. In heaven you will be conformed to Christ, perfectly conformed. All right, we have pretty much no time left. Um, there are some wonderful applications that Jonathan Edwards gives us on his sermon, uh, Heaven is a World of Love. And I just drop them into my handout here. You should read them through. It's a really good motivation on why you should study heaven, what it will do for you now. And then uh, I don't have time to go through heavenly rewards, Jonathan Edwards' uh, resolution to store up as much happiness as he can in the next world now with all the energy and zeal and determination he can. I preached a whole sermon on it. It's entitled, How Much Heaven Do You Want? It's in Revelation 22 uh, and verse 12. So I would look it up based on the story by Tolstoy, How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's a pretty cool story. But we're out of time. All right, David.